Hello, everyone. Welcome to Is It Legal? I'm your host, Dave Plow. This week, I'm talking with David Orntlicker about running for office. David was a member of the Indiana House of Representatives from 2002 until 2008. The plan when I asked David to join me was to talk about his background and his time with the American Medical Association. And we did that, and we had some interesting conversations. But I have always been fascinated by the process of running for office. So to scratch my own itch, I asked him a question about serving in the House. Next thing I knew, I was getting a great story about what election day is like from the perspective of someone who is actually running for office. We're going to start by talking about why David became involved in local politics. So when I moved here, Andy Jacobs, who represented Indianapolis in Congress, had um, decided to resign. So I thought, you know, I had bought a house. It was I expected to be here, unlike in the past where... I never thought I'd be in a particular job or city for more than a few years. I thought, I, you know, this could be for a while. So um, there was going to be an election for, and so this was going to be my new member of Congress and members of Congress, like if it had been, you know, Andy Jacobs was there for a long time. So I wanted to make sure it was a person I supported and liked. And so I met with the uh, Marion County Democratic Party chair and asked, you know, who were the likely candidates? And he gave me a list. And then I went online. It was, we didn't have Google in those days, but there <laughs> were other ways. And I did my research and I really liked one of them, Julia Carson. She had a, I agree with her values and she had a, a really good record of service. Uh, she had been the center township trustee and had done a lot to reform the office and she had served in the Indiana General Assembly, and I really liked what she had done and what she stood for. So I called her up and said, I want to work for you. And I ended up doing a lot of advising for her during her campaign. She was, she was the underdog in the Democratic primary, but she won. And so I did a lot of advising for her during the campaign. And then after she got elected, for the first couple of years as she was getting her staff to put together. I, I continued to do a lot of advising for her. And then the other way I got connected to the political process is, you know, we're a stone's throw from the state house. Oh, right down the road. Right. Yeah. So when the uh, they need when they're holding hearings and they're looking for experts, they often call on professors from IU McKinney to go and I did that a lot. So I was I was testifying before the state legislature. I was advising a member of Congress and I liked it but I was only an advisor. And in the end, they were the decision makers. And, and so I felt like, you know, my ability to influence the, the political process was limited. The other thing, as a professor, what do we do? We say what the law should be. <laughs> right. But when we, somebody else has to implement it. So I said, you know, I want to try implementing the law too. So that's what led me to run for the legislature, to try to implement the ideas that I and other law professors have thought about. What was it like running for a state seat? Did you have to go through the typical day-to-day, -day, like the campaign, the fundraising, all that? Yeah, it's interesting. When I first ran, I thought, you know, okay, you have to campaign. That's the means to the end. I wanted to serve. I wanted to try to change the law. And I thought, I can do this, as, as I say, as a means to an end. But it turned out I really enjoyed the process of going out and campaigning. You learn a lot when you go door to door. And, and it, 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 it wasn't a drudgery. It, it really was a, 
a pleasant part of the process because as I said you got to meet a lot of people, you got to see part of the city, parts of the city you'd never, never wander into because they're residential cul-de-sacs. Um, and the other thing, it it just helped. Uh, you know, when you're running, you, for me, the first time was a year and a half, and you're working for a year and a half, and it all comes down to one day. You know, and and so it can be very, um, you know, uncertain. There's all this uncertainty. Right. What's going to happen? Yeah. Well, when you go door to door, you always get some some affirmation from, you know, I would my wife would will say, you know, I'd always come back with some, you know, stories about this experience and and how positive it was because people appreciate it when you go to their door. Um, so it, it made it easier to deal with the uncertainty of this election because I always felt like I was making progress every day I'd meet new vote, new potential constituents and we'd have good discussions and I'd feel like, as I said, it was, it was, it was affirming. I also didn't find the fundraising and all that difficult. Um, it's not so bad at the state levels at the federal level. You don't, I mean, I had to raise a lot of money and my first race was the, the most expensive state legislative race ever in Indiana. So it wasn't cheap, we but it wasn't right at in. the level. Yeah. I didn't have to raise millions. <laughs> I had to raise hundreds of thousands, but um, that wasn't as, as daunting as raising millions. Talked a little bit about that day of the election. I assume there's a lot of sweaty palms that day, just nervous energy. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. Um, as you're going along, you work very hard. I knocked on tens of thousands of doors. I, I spent a year and a half um, trying to do anything I could. It's funny, as toward the end, you feel like, you know, the process, it's, you know, you're like, you're, you have less control as the, the hours and days and hours and minutes tick off. But going into the final day, we knew it was close, uh, that it was going to be a close race. Um, so, you know, I went and I spent, 12 hours at the poll and trying to shake as many hands and, and, you know, and win as many votes as I could. But in the, so then you are, there we were after the polls closed, we went to party headquarters to, as the votes came in and we started trailing, but as the, you know, we kept narrowing the margin, but by the end of the night, and it was pretty late, probably 11 or 1130, we, we, we were 26, 28 votes short. So I went to bed thinking I had lost. Oh. <laughs> only by, this is 20,000 votes. Right. That's... And only 20, less than 30. But it's hard to believe. You know, you really think you're going to win. You, re, you believe in yourself. You have to believe in yourself if you're going to persuade. You, you don't believe you in don't, your swell man. voters are. Right. So you really think you're going to win. I really thought I was going to win, and I just hadn't really sunk in. So as I'm getting going to bed, it's you know like midnight. I'm tired. I've been up since five in the morning. I get a call from one of the local radio stations, with TV stations, when I come in for their morning show to talk <laughs> about. It. Well, you know, all right, I'm go you don't turn it down. So I said, sure. <laughs> so it's the morning show. I had to be there. I don't know, six a.m. Whatever. So I get up not without much sleep, and I'm driving down. It's dark out, and as I'm driving, I'm you know thinking about what I'm going to say, you know, I was going to be gracious, right. you know, but I had, you know, a gracious non-winner. <laughs> so as I'm driving, um, I get a call. 
as I'm on I-65 heading downtown. I don't, it's only a less than a 15-minute drive, and it's the station calling up and say, we've, we've rerun the numbers. You actually are ahead. And I thought, wow. <laughs> so I, I could be the gracious winner. <laughs> so I gave my interview about how honored I was to win and, you know, what could... You know that my incumbent ran a great race and all that, and I, and I feel very good about it. And I get home, and as I'm getting ready to go back to bed because I'm still pretty tired, the station calls back and said, "Oops, we miscounted." Oh, no. <laughs> See, the district crossed the Marion County Hamilton County line, and when they thought I won, it was because they only looked at the Marion County votes, which was where the Democratic votes were. And when you add in the Republican votes from Hamilton County, I I was still down. So, so there was, I was back to not winning, but they had to do an official counting of the votes, you know, and uh, when they did the official counting, then 5 p.m., they reported the official count. Instead of being down by 28 votes, I was up by 36 votes. <laughs> and there was, uh, I forget if it was some absentee ballots or there was a mistaken reading of one of the precincts, but whatever. I was up by 36 votes, and this was the official count. So, um, so this was important not only because now uh, I was going to be the representative, but whoever won my district, that was the deciding district for who would have the majority. All the other districts had been decided. So it was a tie. So whoever, whoever won that seat was going to have the majority in the House. And the the Democrats ended up with the majority, so it was a big deal. Right. And with 36 votes, there was a, a recount. So for six, we had a, it took six weeks to do the recount. So it was kind of nice. There was all this attention to to my race. Uh, it went from 36 to 37 votes. All right. So, yeah. Hey, it's uh, always good to get that extra. Always good to get the extra. It sounds like a real roller coaster right it was, there. Yeah. It was. Um, and so that's uh, well how it happened, and it was uh, yeah, it was. You know, if you're an exciting way to enter the state house. We've got more with David coming up. But first, our sponsor, the Robert H. McKinney School of Law, would like to remind you to check out its website for more information on the Hall Center for Law and Health, one of the top-ranked health law programs in the country. The center is a great resource for health law information for the bar, government, and healthcare community. McKinney Law JD students can earn a certificate in health law and participate in the Indiana Health Law Review or the Health Law Society. You can find out more at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. Getting back to David, he's currently the co-director of the William S. and Christine S. Hall Center for Law and Health, and he's been with our sponsor, the IU McKinney Law School, since the mid-90s, which means he was a law professor while he was a member of the Indiana House in 2002. What I hadn't appreciated till I explored running is Indiana, like most states, have, has part legislatures part-time. Congress is full-time, but state legislatures are generally part-year. So we're not unusual in, you know, we have a budget year and a, and a non-budget year. So the budget year goes four months. You start after, you know, early January, and then we get we, the legislature, and the budget year goes to the end of April. In the off year, which is an election year, so you can see why they want shorter sessions so they can go on campaign, it tends to go to about mid-March. But it can, it, they can adjourn earlier. It's not as, like the budget year is end of April. But the off year can be end of February through mid-March. 
And so I, I continue in the fall, then I could teach my usual courses because we're not, this legislature wasn't in session. So that wasn't a problem. In the spring, it was hard to teach. So I'd either teach no courses or maybe a, a Friday seminar when the legislature's, you know, it's a Monday through Thursday week. And then on Friday I could teach or maybe a Tuesday night class, but I, I would reduce to, you know, maybe three quarters time when during the session. Was there any legislation that you got passed that you were particularly proud of or that you wanted to talk about? Yeah. So the areas I focused on were economic development. That's something that every legislator worries about. I campaigned on it and I worked on it. I worked on, um, so the, the legislation there that I got passed that I was proud of was, um, one of the realities is that jobs are created by new companies, small new companies. So you wanna have an entrepreneurial culture. And to have an entrepreneurial culture, you need to have funding. Start, they need to have you know, venture capital. Because when you're uh, you know, creating your new company in your garage, banks are not going to comfortable lending to you. So you need to go to private equity, venture capital. Um, and one way to help build your pool of venture capital, you know, you look to private equity. But a big pool of investment funds are the um, retirement you know, the, the state pension funds are big pool of equity. And, it, and you don't want to use a lot for private equity because it's risky, but the good way to diversify too. And, and what I, what, uh, I, one of my constituents who I got, you know, somebody I'd gotten to know during the campaign after I got elected and I was asking people, you know, for ideas, he was involved in, in the private equity world. And he said, Ohio had passed a you know statute requiring that um, its pension funds, state pension funds, when they they didn't have to invest in private equity, but if they did, they should allocate keep a significant amount at home in Ohio. And so I thought that was a good idea. So that was the idea that you, again you don't tell the pension funds where to. You can't say you have to put. 5% of your investments in private equity. But if they were going to invest in private equity, they should have a target. I don't think it was a, a fixed requirement, but that they should have a goal of, I forget if it was 20 or 25% in Indiana to help our startup companies. So I, I did that. I was also interested in healthcare reform. This was before the Affordable Care Act. So a friend of mine, uh, who's another healthcare law professor, uh, when I was asking friends for, you know, colleagues for ideas, yeah. he talked about something that, um, that ultimately we got passed. And the idea here was if you're, if you work for a company and you get your health insurance through the company, like I do at IU or people who work at Eli Lilly, um, you can use pre-tax dollars to pay for your health care insurance. In other words, you take 10,000 of your salary and you can spend the full 10,000 on your, so IU spends, effectively spends 10,000 of my salary on my health insurance. Instead of giving me the 10,000, they buy insurance for me. Now, if they gave me that 10,000 instead, before that money would get to me, 
They'd have to deduct Social Security payroll taxes, Medicare payroll taxes. They'd have to withhold for my income tax. So in the end, instead of getting $10,000, I'd get maybe $7,000. And then I'd go out and buy $7,000 worth of insurance. So by having IU buy my insurance, I get $10,000 worth rather than $7,000. That's a pretty good deal. But if you don't, if you're self-employed or if your employer doesn't provide insurance, you've got to use after-tax dollars. You only get the 7,000 rather than the 10,000. So the idea was to say to businesses that didn't provide health insurance as a benefit, okay, we're not going to make you provide insurance, but we're going to say to you, set up if, so if the employer, um, there was the IRS has this section 125, it's called, where they have these cafeteria plans for employee benefits. So if the employer set one of these plans up so that the employee got their insurance through the employer, but the employee still paid 100% of the cost, then they could use pre-tax dollars. So that was the idea. Employers, it's not, you don't have to pay for it, but just set up these, this cafeteria plan so the employees can use pre-tax dollars. So that, that's the idea. Yeah. And employers would get a credit for the hassle of setting it up. You know, it's not, they don't have to pay for it, but they, you know, it costs them, you know. It takes time. takes time. And so we would give them a credit. And we got that passed and, and we saw employers were claiming the credit. So we knew that people were getting insurance through this. You know, uh, things were working out. Yeah. And then the third area that I was interested in was child abuse. When I came into office, there was a lot of um, attention and the Indianapolis Star and the TV stations were highlighting the fact that we had a high rate of deaths from child abuse and neglect. High, you know, was we were unfortunately leaders in this and that's something you want to be leaders in. No, not at all. So we needed, we realized that we needed to make changes. And at the time I had served, I had been appointed to, to a commission uh, to look at, study it, that was chaired by the Dean of the School for Social Work here, Mike Patchen. And so we, the commission, we studied and we came up with a number of recommendations. And then as a legislator, I tried to implement some. So that was another area that we implement a number of the recommendations and it did a lot to improve our child welfare system. I got to ask, uh, you haven't been the house since 2008. Is it something you'd be interested in doing again? Well, I'm glad I did it, but I, you know, I said one of the drives to go there was so I could implement mm -hmm. ideas. But then when I got there, I realized you don't have time to develop <laughs> ideas. So I missed developing the ideas. So I'm glad I spent six years implementing ideas, but I'm glad I now have the chance to develop ideas. So I could see, you know, after I've you know, that I may come to the point where I feel like, okay, this is good. I'm glad I got back to developing ideas, but now I'm, I want to try to implement them again. So that might happen. But right now I've got some important projects that I want to, you know, fully develop. What kind of projects? Well, there are two. One came out of my experience as a legislator because one of the things when I first started campaigning, I said, and I, I really meant this, that I was going to be bipartisan. I was going to judge ideas where they were not where they were Democratic or Republican. I'm not, I wasn't the first to say this, and I won't be the last. 
And I tried very hard to do that. And I did a better job, I think, than most. But I also found it's very hard to remain above the partisan fray that we're all very too familiar with. You really get sucked in. So that led me to think, okay, it, there must be something about the system because all these elect candidates and elected officials say they want to be bipartisan, they end up being partisan. And, and I thought, you know, I don't think it's because the voters select for the partisan candidates and reject the bipartisan. It's something about the system that pushes you to be partisan. So then I thought, well, what is it about the system? And, and I thought about, you know, what's going on in Indiana, but more because it's a bigger problem at the national level. And I think what really drives it is the fact that, you know, the most powerful political official in the world is the U.S. president. The U.S. president has a tremendous amount of power, more power than the framers intended, but it's, it's a huge amount of power. And, you know, it can be frustrating to deal with Congress, but if you're frustrated with Congress, then the president just does these executive orders and rules and bypasses Congress. So presidents have a huge amount of power. And we give all this power to one party. And if, so, of course, the people who are shut out of the White House, they're going to feel like they don't have any voice in all this policy making. And if, of course, they're going to spend their time trying to get the power back. And we get into this vicious cycle. One party wins, the other party tries to obstruct until they get it back. And then the, the new minority tries to f obstruct it so we can get the power back. Vicious back and forth. Yeah. So that led me to think, you know, what if we, the parties were, so, so, it, so giving all this power to one party drives this, fuels this partisan conflict. It's not the only cause, but it's a big, important part. The other thing that's bad when you give all this par power, all this presidential power to one par person, they only have one perspective. And nobody has a monopoly on the truth. And we know from how does, you know, when people study how should you make decisions, it's much better when you have people from different perspectives deciding and bringing their, having to reconcile their different viewpoints rather than have one side make all the decisions. So that led me to think we would be better off for a number of reasons if the Democrats and Republicans shared the power rather than one side getting to impose its view on the other side. So I wrote this book, Two Presidents Are Better Than One. And so I've been working on developing that idea and, and trying to persuade people that we would be better off as a country if, if Democrats and Republicans shared the power and had to work out their differences together. And if they had incentives, if you get, if you, and it depend, you know, if you structured it properly, you could create incentives for them to cooperate because presidents want to leave legacies. Absolutely. And so they would understand very quickly if it were Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, that either they worked with their partner and left legacy or they fought their partner and left and did nothing. And presidents don't want to go down in the record books and the history books as do nothing presidents. So, and, and I, and, and I also may, you know, drew on my own experience because when you hear elected officials and candidates talk, you think they're, they could never compromise and, and work with somebody. But when you talk with them one-on-one, -on -one, you realize that a lot of what they, you have to discount a lot of what they say because our current system, when we have these winner-take-all elections, that encourages you to, you have to, 
show why you're different from the other side, why you should get the power and not them. If you talk about all the areas where you agree, then why would the voters <laughs> want to elect you? So I think the old adage that there's 80% agreement and 20% disagreement is true. Our current system forces elected officials to talk about the 20% disagreement. If, if you say you're going to share power, then they'll spend their time on the 80% where they agree. And so that's why um, another reason why I'm confident that we would get, we wouldn't end up in gridlock because, you know, just you look at uh, the individual mandate to purchase health care. That was a Republican governor, Mitt Romney, got it you know, implemented in Massachusetts and a Democratic president in Washington. It started out as a Republican idea that the Democrats signed on to. So, so I'm con that's another reason why I'm confident that they would find, wouldn't have trouble finding common ground. And I don't want to give anything about the book away, but I assume you outline how this could work and how to make it happen. Yeah, you'd need a constitutional amendment. Uh, it wouldn't be that complicated. What we would say is instead of sending the top vote getter, we send the top two. And that's a variation on the original Constitution. In the original Constitution, the top two vote getters became president and vice president. So we have an experience with that. There's, a, there's another virtue of doing it that way. Uh, if you say the top two vote getters get in, it means the third party candidates have a much better chance. Because right now, if you vote for a third party candidate, you're worried that you're throwing away your vote and all you'll do is, you know, if you, if you say you liked Ralph Nader and you voted for Ralph Nader, all you might have done was make sure George Bush became president. You might doom Al Gore when Ralph Nader really didn't have a chance. But if you have a two-person presidency, then if you vote for Ralph Nader and, and George Bush runs first, well, it doesn't matter because you know Al Gore, Ralph Nader is going to run second. So it's safe to vote for the third party candidate. Everyone, that is it for David. I would like to thank him for taking time out of his schedule to come and speak with me for this podcast. And our sponsors at the IU McKinney School of Law would like to remind you about the annual Indiana Health Law Review Symposium on March 27th. The event will center on medical myths, exploring effectiveness, misinformation, and scientific rigor. More information and registration available on the website at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. Listeners, thank you for sticking with me. We appreciate it more than you'll ever know. Check us out on Facebook so that you don't miss any updates. And remember, I'll catch you next time on Is It Legal?